Welcome to the Writer's Jihad. In Islam, jihad means the struggle for peace, the greatest of which is within ourselves. For most writers, we imagine that once we make it, we'll be at peace. But that's not true. The top professionals find peace as elusive as anyone else. The Writer's Jihad is a podcast series of interviews with writers at different points in their careers talking about the struggle for peace in their industry. Every award-winning professional began as an unpublished amateur. We all start at the same place. We all face the same struggles. And we shouldn't hide those struggles behind the mystique of the craft, nor the glamour of success. If we can help each other, we should. So today, I'm... <laughs> I'm not even dancing yet. You said this focus, I said something. All right, I'm going to let this one play. Okay. So today, I'm with Willard Foxton. And Will, as you will have heard him during our story toolkit, he showed up a couple of times, talk mainly about Judge Dredd. Um, but I've got him with us today. Hello, Will. Hello, Bass. Uh, you might remember me from all the best episodes of the story <laughs> <laughs> The ones about Judge Dredd or Band of Brothers. Yeah. Did, we do, did you only do two? I think I did three. I think I did Band of Brothers and then I did Pacific. I think yeah. I did three. I can't remember what one was about. I might have yeah. Band of Brothers, Pacific and Judge Dredd. We I would think de- I did three, maybe two. We I were think. definitely going to do Chernobyl. That was a plan. Remember? We yeah. never did it. We, we were going we to. We never did. It was good. It, it was good. Let me tell you, people, that unrecorded episode was really good. You know, because Will, Will had me go over to his place to watch Chernobyl, and I stayed the night to watch all the episodes over there with you. And I hit you with a pillow a lot of times, screaming, why did you make me watch this? Why? Why? And then I think I concluded at the end that electricity wasn't worth it. Yeah, so basically the key thing is I, I would be able to tell you why I made you watch it, but I'd have to have a board with lots of like red and blue cards <laughs> add and remove in order to oh. demonstrate. Oh, well, should I walk? It, that was excellent. That was, that was a gripping piece. But uh, believe it or not, you may have other credentials beyond you are on two episodes of, of a dead podcast. What? <laughs> I mean, that was the high point of my career, I'll be honest. But, um, yeah, so for um, God, the best part of like 15 years now, I've been a television producer. Um, I've made films for... I can honestly say all the major broadcasts in the world, uh, HBO, Netflix, uh, Amazon Prime, all the British ones, ITV, BBC, uh, Sky. Uh, the most I've ever sold a TV project for was $6 million to Netflix. That's the, the high point of my career. Um, I what, what project all over the world. What project was that? What was the one that you sold to Netflix? Is it so out? I didn't, I, no, it's not out yet, but uh. I can talk about it. So basically, it was an ITV. So I did a documentary for ITV, a three-part documentary, mm. where British pilots went to Top Gun, uh. Uh, which is a real place, as it turns out. Okay. Uh, and no volleyball, although we kept asking them to play some volleyball for us. They wouldn't do it. Um, uh, you know, top, when I was getting... top Gun is a film you made me watch. I'd never watched it, and I remember watching it in Bristol with you and Matt Woodsmith and all the guys there. You guys made me watch Top Gun, and my takeaway was: is the is the subtext is the gay subtext not intentional? Like that was that, I mean, that was my reaction to it. It was incredibly homoerotic. I was um, I was astounded. 
like the volleyball the 80s, scene in particular. It was in the eighties. It was definitely a very macho manly film. What are you talking about, gayness? But like looking at back so on it, super gay. <laughs> but real Top Gun. Yes. You know, it's not we don't talk about the gayness of Top Gun, though. right? Absolutely not. Um, but yeah, so, so going out there the first time, the commissioner from ITV literally like stopped me out the door and was like, Willard, I want you to promise me mm. you're going to find an American and he's going to stand next to a fighter jet and he's going to turn to the camera and he's going to say, hear that? That's the sound of freedom. <laughs> and I was like, I'll try. I'll really try. <laughs> we got British pilots going at the Top Gun. That was very exciting. It was it was a great show. It did really, really well for ITV. But obviously in doing that, mm. we had access to Top Gun. So we went around lots of broadcasters and were like, this is how much it will cost to do the whole of Top Gun. Uh, <clears throat> and um, eventually Netflix came up with the money. So, oh, yeah, nice. $6 million for a six-part series, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, can't complain. But I've done loads and loads of stuff all over the world. Yeah. Um, I, I literally don't know how many films I've made. That, that is like, wow. so it's, it's dozens. Just in terms of certain strands, so, like, for example, I, for Dispatches, I've made at least 24 films. Wow. Dispatches is, like, one of Britain's yes. top current affairs strands. So I've made at least 24 films for them, but it's probably in the in the order of like 100 hours of television. Nice. Like around that, around about that. Nice. I, um, I, I remember because we've known each other since we were five. Um, so I've, I've, I've watched you slowly do this. It's been very nice to watch. Um, and now you're with Novel? Yes. So about 18 months ago, I became head of development, which is the sort of top kind of pitching producer yeah. for a company called Novel, which right. over the last 18 months has become has gone from a four-person company to a 44-person company Ooh. and is now the biggest independent audio and podcast production company in the UK. That's fantastic. So we've gone from kind of like a million turnover to five million turnover in a year, which is Lovely. pretty exciting. That is. And that's like, fantastic. I'm not going to say that's all my ideas, but it's a lot of them. <laughs> right, okay. So we did the largest, we did the biggest deal in, um, in UK audio history. Uh, so it was an absolutely mad situation. We went to a pitch and essentially the, this was when I was still freelancing for novel rather than right. full time. Uh, and I, they said to me, oh, can you come up with a, can you come up with a slate of ideas? And we'd like, we're taking like 12 ideas into an American broadcaster. And you expect when you take a slate in like that, that they'll maybe buy one, maybe two, if you're really lucky. But these guys loved the idea so much, they were like, we'll take all 12. And we were like, oh, you're going to buy all 12 at one go. Nice. It's like a three-year deal. You know, it's, like, it's the biggest deal, in, big, biggest deal in UK audio history. That's fantastic. To be fair, it's UK, it's UK audio history. So <laughs> the biggest deal in UK audio history is kind of like being the tallest of the dwarves. But, you know, it's like... <laughs> It's still a lot of money, right? Okay, and it's a lot of money. And the most rewarding and exciting thing about it is it's not just a lot of money. Mm. It's like a tremendous amount of jobs. Oh, so one of the things that's really exciting about creating, I find really exciting about creating stuff, mm. especially having been a freelancer for so long, mm. is when I sell an idea, mm. that's not just like, oh, cool, I get to tell a cool story. It's like 10 people uh, get to work for a year. And that's, that's awesome. Nice. That's like yeah. one of the coolest things. Yeah, there's that sound. Yeah. I get, I, yeah, that's a very nice way of looking at it. And uh, didn't you guys just win an award? We've won loads of awards. Well, we've just been nominated for like an, an insane heap of awards. We won loads of awards last year for yeah. things 
we did this great show about like tracking down the Russians who shot down the MH17 jet. Hmm. Uh, and we've done a load of really cool shows this year. We did things, we did a, like a really experimental comedy show called Futile Attempts, uh, which is won like a massive boatload of awards. But we're up for like six big awards. I think it, the award is the Audio UK Awards. They're up in like we're in two weeks' time. And right. I think the, the most rewarding thing about it is a lot of the kind of younger producers. Who, uh, who were very junior when I started working there are up for um, individual awards. So like, oh, so like, okay. I think two of two of them, like the best young producers, and one's up for like best best arts producer of the year, and oh, another nice. one is up for like best new producer of the year. And that's really really exciting very because again, these people these people were literally like when I started working with all these people, were literally in their like first job, and you know. Um, it's nothing to do with me, the fact that they've, they've excelled. Literally nothing to do with me. They've done an amazing job in their own right. Um, and one of those, the, the, the person who's up for Best Newcomer of the Year is, she is, um, she's like show running. So she's gone from like, almost like her first job to like, she's like show running a massive, massive uh, show that's coming out in about two weeks' time. Fantastic. Which is very exciting. What's, what's um, the show? Really exciting. Can you tell us? Um, I think I can probably tell you about this. I think I can probably tell you about this now because by the time this podcast goes out, it'll probably be legit. So I can talk about it, I think, from the 18th of November. So I think you can probably hold off uploading it until <laughs> Thursday. Um, but yeah, so basically it's called uh, Harsh Reality. Right. And it's about the most unethical reality show ever made. And essentially there's like a whole hidden, wow. like, hidden backstage story to it. Which, of course, I knew because I'd worked in television. It was kind yeah. of a whispered story in television. Uh, and I was able to kind of unearth it for the first time and reveal the whole full story behind it and how the sort of everyone involved had, like, the best of intentions, but it's all, it all went horribly wrong. And where, this sort of, where, where's this on? What's this it's on a network, a big podcast network called Wondery, which is one of the biggest podcast, podcast networks in the world. Oh, okay. And they are, they do things, they do things like Dr. Death and um, uh, Dirty John and Tiger King all came out, oh. all came out of Wondery. And so like they, so essentially a lot of the thing, a lot of the podcasts they make get adapted into television and right. both scripted and unscripted. Right. I see. That sounds interesting. That sounds really fascinating. Um, mm. Really interesting, actually. Um, yeah. Well, that's, that's great. That's great. I mean, I've heard a lot of horror stories from you <laughs> my my favorite might be the um the the one that i offered very much to play a part in but i don't know if we can talk tell that story you can talk about that you can talk you can tell that story i can, t- fine, I can right? tell I about the cryogenic one yeah yeah you can tell the cryogenic you want me to tell the cryogenic story i mean that guy is like oh my God, like hey i used to work for this i used to work for a company that was owned by i'm not going to name any names but i used to work for a company that owned by the son of a very famous billionaire and the the to be fair the, the son of a very famous billionaire was was mostly snowboarding so we hardly ever saw him and in some ways it was is, a lovely job. is that a euphemism no 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 not a euphemism <laughs> um but yeah so he was mostly he was mostly having fun and yeah but that meant that some of the people who got hired were not perhaps the best people who'd be hired and we had this right. one exec who was like an absolute meathead and he at one point, yeah, literally wanted, he came into the office and he was like, I've had an amazing brainwave, an incredible brainwave. Why has nobody ever filmed cryogenics? So we'll freeze, we'll freeze people. And then, so then 
It's amazing. Moldovan research was like incredibly. He was like he was like curt and could cut people dead in a way that only like Eastern European women can. So he was like put down her drink and was like, nobody has filmed it because there's a sort of science and this kill people. And then he paused. I'm telling you wrong. This is a great lesson in pitching. He paused and was like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, it's a, it's really scientific. It won't work. But yeah, this guy was like the he was like a top guy in the business. We couldn't say no to him. He did things that he pitched all he he made me pitch a thing. The other person who worked on this has subsequently gone on to be like an Oscar nominated director. <laughs> and he's like an amazing director. But so we had to work together on this complete flight of fantasy from this idiot. But basically he wanted to make a VR experience of the hostage taking of Terry Waite. Oh Terry Waite is a hostage who was famously taken prisoner and had a bag put over his head for seven years. And we were like you really oh. named him now, dear. You have to cut that out. You have to bleep that. But we were like, do you really think people are going to put on VR glasses to under- and they're going to be like chained to a radiator with their head in a bag in real time? Do you think that's a viable commercial television project? I mean, it's maybe it's like arguably great art. Oh. <laughs> like, I, the, I mean, that sounds like a joke. But but it was really, that was there were so many of these stories. Really wanted- there were so many stories, but the one when you came to me and you said and you said the guy goes, uh, why hasn't anyone interviewed anyone who's come back from cryogenics? That I was I just I couldn't stop laughing and I just said, if you want, I will absolutely pretend I was cryogenically frozen and you can interview me. I will do this. I will absolutely pretend that I've done this. I'll be like, what is this? What year is this? I'll do it. I'll do it all. Just, Have I ever told you anything about him and um, him beautiful... and Silvio? No. Him and Silvio from, from um, The Sopranos. So basically... Oh, yes, you have. Was... This is a great story as well, Go on. Yeah, so basically he was obsessed with the idea of he was like, I think we want to make a show. It's a bit like Manager's <laughs> Kitchen Nightmares, but for biz- small business, but instead of having a chef, have a guy from the mafia come in and he teaches small businesses how to win a business the mafia way. And we were like, yeah, the, winning the mafia way is like you have to break people's legs and you have to deal a lot of heroin. And he was like, no, 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 there's going to be like mafia tricks that they can teach small businesses. And we were like, who are, so we went out and like we had to do the job. So we were like going out and we're talking for like, we talked to this mafia guy who'd like invented this exercise. Oh. Machine, he'd like quit the mafia and bent an exercise machine and he was like yeah when I left the mob I just realised it was all about hard work hard work right and um, yeah so I could take this guy back to this executive so I'm like I found a guy who was ex-mafia he's now like a very successful entrepreneur he invented an exercise machine and this guy's like yeah but his tips are all like work hard and be fiscally prudent I need mafia tips and I was like fine and I, I after a few weeks of looking I was like look I'm, I'm really sorry it's just someone, this doesn't exist. I just said his name again. Um, <laughs> but I was like, you, they just aren't, they don't exist. These people that you want to exist, they don't exist. And he's like, no, of course they exist. Like all the guys in Sopranos, in the Sopranos, they're all real mafia guys, don't you know? And I was like, no, they're, they're not real mafia guys, they're actors. And he was like, no, they're not. Silvio's a real mafia guy. And I was like, no, he's not. He's the bassist in Bruce C's <laughs> E Street Band. And he was like, Don't be ridiculous. Don't oh, be ridiculous. Oh. And he genuinely thought, yeah, Steve Manzan was a real mafia guy <laughs> who would really come on this programme as a Gordon Ramsay figure. And like And tell small businesses has- how to commit crimes. <laughs> 
Don't get me wrong. If it was true, it would have been a good show. <laughs> oh, man. It's so good. Uh, there's, you know, there's some, there's something beautiful about the innocence. Even if <laughs> just the, the naivete of it, just like, yeah, people really do come back from cryogenics. Yeah. It's <laughs> mafia people. Can, the people who play the mafia on TV are real mafia people and they'll help small businesses <laughs> thrive. But like, if he was oh. seven, it would have been really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> he was like 40. Oh, wow. I got a real kind of insight into his life once. It was amazing. It was Christmas. Oh, it was wow. Christmas Eve. It was Christmas Eve, in fact. And then, obviously, like, you know, to, to preserve holiday days, you work right after Christmas if you can, because there's yeah. never any work to do in the last week before Christmas. Right. Yeah. And it was Christmas Eve, 10 a.m. Christmas Eve. Sat there, I've got my email program open. I'm not doing any work. It's Christmas Eve. Yeah. I'm just literally counting the minutes until I can <laughs> walk home. And he stands up and he goes oh my god oh my god i've made a disastrous oh my god my kids aren't gonna get any christmas presents do you know if i order things from amazon today i can't get them until like december the 30th what's that all about <laughs> and I was like, what, have, you, have you left all of your christmas present ordering until 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve. Oh. And he was trying to order Christmas presents to me. All, all his Christmas presents were on Christmas Eve at 10 o'clock in the morning. Oh, it was yeah. just, he was just insanely stupid. It was, it was unbelievable oh, how dumb he was. Remarkably successful. Remarkably successful, man. He, he is not, he, this does not seem to have damaged his, you know, getting fired from that company, which he eventually did get fired from that company, does not seem to have damaged his career in any way, shape, or form. So, like, fine. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Well, okay. <laughs> um, so, so today we were going to talk about time, uh, and considering that you know your last anecdote just had a, a guy not understanding how time works, uh, that that seems inappropriate. <laughs> so um, we, as as I, I as I mentioned earlier, we've known each other since we were five. We were part of the same theatre group that. Luke and Jason, who have also been on this podcast, uh, were part of. We were all part of FODs together. Uh, and then you went to university um, and you did not go into writing. Um, and then, so, so you, how, you, you had this trajectory, right? And you went, you sort of, I remember because, you know, we were all, all of us were trying to make this these creative things happen, right? Uh, Luke was trying with his music and his writing. Jason's trying with his writing. I'm trying with my writing. And uh, you, so you were very much like you wanted to write fiction. That was a thing. Um, and now you are a producer, right? And so you mm -hmm. aren't writing fiction. Right, you're producing all these other these works, right, um, and all these sort of documentaries and podcasts and things. And you you were telling me that because uh, when I asked you if you wanted to do this podcast, you wanted to talk about time and how you have to make time for it and how you just don't have the time. Um, like you don't even have time to play games right now. Right. And, no, it's all. It's a huge part of my life. Like, yeah. I, so, so slowly, like hobbies have got kind of like I, I'm 
uh, not only do I have a, like a, a management job in a small business, which takes up tons of time. Yeah. Um, I also have, um, you know, I also have like, I love, I love Mortal Soldiers. I love war gaming. Yeah. I love board games. Yeah. I love computer games as well, actually. Like, yeah. And I love reading. And basically, yeah. like, like, well, well, I should I've, say, I've got, I should say, you know, the two of us, we, I mean, you, um, you introduced me to almost all the people that I like. Like you have this whole like uh, we had, you had this whole role playing game um, mm. part of your life, the circle of friends that all played role playing game, and you all played mm. Warhammer and Games Workshop stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that you're still very much, that's still very much part of your life, right? Yeah, I'm still friends with almost all those people, but basically, like my time has like I've got two kids now as well. So yes. like not only management roles, small business, but also I've got two. I've got a, a, a lovely wife. I've got two kids. Yeah. And like my time has got squeezed more and more and more and more. So like I don't think I've played a computer game now for about a decade, for example. Really. I very rarely get time to. Re- I very rarely get time to read. Mm-hmm. When I do read, I tend to read. When I do read, I tend to read things that are like often directly connected to something I'm working on. Right. Of course. Um. So like like to give me extra context or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um. I've I, I've managed this year. It's probably the worst I've done in terms of reading. I've probably managed to read about better than most people but i've managed to read about four novels this year which is really bad for somebody that kind of like right. writes themselves as a writer um and yeah so so i'm, I'm reading a lot less i'm watching almost no television i was saying to that that was like have you seen but as we were sort of preparing the podcast that was like oh well, i can't remember what you said i was what i've been watching what do you what do we do in the shadows yeah, what we that's what saying. Oh, have you seen what you were doing in the shadows? I've seen. I like. I, I watched season one. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Like bottle feeding a child, and uh, <laughs> I haven't seen any of it since. Yeah. And there's loads of TV, like for example, absolutely tons of TV uh, that I would love to watch. Like I'd love to catch up with Better Call Saul, but I'm like, years behind on that. Really? And I just sort of like, I don't have time to watch TV. I don't have time to read. I don't have time yeah. to like play game. I probably played like. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has cut across things a little, but I've yes. only played like three games of Warhammer this year. I've maybe done, I, I haven't done a role playing system for years. So, no. a huge amount of my hobbies have been kind of like pared down because I just don't have time. Right, of course. Um, and obviously, Luke hates my hobby. We've, we've learned that from the same <laughs> one. But, the, um, but I'm not saying writing is a hobby. It's definitely something that I want to do and I definitely do make time for. <laughs> um, it's just the fact of like, talking about trajectory and basically so i went came out of i suppose i always looked at writing as like a luxury it was always something that was right. it was fun and i enjoyed it and therefore because i enjoyed it it couldn't be allowed to be a way of making a living right that right. was my sort of stupid attitude to it okay so i was a, a crazy lawyer first and then decided i was going to leave being a lawyer but i was always a good writer that was always my thing i was a great writer and i was yeah. a really good public speaker and so I decided that what I was going to do was I kind of paid my way through law school by being a music journalist, which I never saw as a real job because it was just like for a way of, at first it was literally just a way of getting free gig tickets. Mm. And then I realized mm. that I was really much better than everybody else who was writing for music magazines at the time. Right. And that was partly because I was, a, I was a pretty good writer. I wasn't the best writer by any no. standard, but I was the one who could, everyone could guarantee to turn up to the right venue right. at the right time and mm. take a pen with me and then file on time so like you know right, right. reliability gets you a long way sure in any yes. profession so i used to i studied music journalism but then when i quit being a lawyer i was like god i have to do something serious with my life something serious and worthwhile i can't just like right. i can't just write like fun things anymore i can't write like right. can't write film reviews music reviews all that kind of 
So I became like a serious journalist. Um, and I was, I was, and I suppose arguably still am a serious journalist. I mean, one of the series we had come out recently was a thing called Smokescreen, which is kind of investigations of tobacco companies rigging elections. A wow. bunch of big investi- investigations. Yeah, I've probably done dozens of big investigations in my time. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was sort of, and, and again, that like, you know, required a tremendous amount of writing skill. Mm. And I'd say in a normal week, <laughs> I probably, like, so for example, this week, I've got, just as part of my normal day job, I've got three, probably 2,000 word treatments to write. So in a normal week, and that's a pretty normal workload, um, and so in a normal week, yeah, I'll probably write around six to 8,000 words of, like, yeah. just, just, just block, like, here is an article length, 2,000 3,000 word sure. piece that kind of explains everything you need to know about this story and as soon as you put it down you're like oh my god I have to buy this I have to have this podcast I have right. to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on it so I will, I will write some, I write a tremendous amount like a yes. tremendous amount and then as a player it's one of the things that's difficult about writing all day for a living so when I was a journalist sometimes yeah. when I was working at BBC News for example yes. we'd have to write four to six pieces a day Five hundred to seven hundred words. So yeah, my sort of output is like my output is pretty big, and I can write a tremendous amount. Like so, some of the some of the sort of junior producers I work with are just astonished. Yes, by the amount I can write in a day. Like you know, because I've just been doing it for years and years and years. One yeah. thing I think I'd say that time is so. There's two two factors to well, the whole time thing. One is the fact that like my time that is not kind of work time or family time is tremendously squeezed yes and i have to really i have to really like i really value my kind of um not not looking after my family and not doing my job time yeah also there's a factor of i this is this comes back to sort of title of the podcast and sort of the writer's jihad and the writer's struggle when you've written all day for your job when your job is writing all day right you come home and you're like you're like a sponge where all the water's been wrung out of it sometimes yeah like i've been writing all day yeah i want to come home and write some more (laughs) it's really also writing fiction is really hard but also you're you're not writing for a job or a production company you're writing and then if it ever gets finished then you will try and get it made and then you have to try and sell it and it's not a job right because a lot of the time when people say well it doesn't matter if you're exhausted you just do it anyway you get down and you're right and it's like yeah people who do that are typically very successful and they're working on a tv mm-hmm. show they they have a production company they have these things mm-hmm. and so as a result it's their job so of course you just do your job right but when you don't have your job, when you're writing your third novel, when you're writing your second season of a TV show, it's very different to just go, well, I'm tired and exhausted, but I still have words to put down on page. But when you're not in that situation, um, going, well, I spent the whole day writing and working and doing all the last thing I want to do now is write. It's like, yeah. So don't, you know, why, why would you put yourself through it? Um, but... <clears throat> You mentioned one, one story. I will sort of interject yes. on that one. Is one of my favourite stories about writing and about the methodology of writing yeah. is uh, one about about political novelist Anthony Trollope. <laughs> and Trollope's method of writing is one of the most insane things I've ever heard. Right. Right. Trollope would write. He'd sit at his desk and he would write all day from nine in the morning till six in the evening. Right. Even if he finished a novel at like one PM, 
you would just take the finished novel, right. put it to one side, and then he'd take the new page and he'd stop the next novel. And that was dis- that was the discipline wow. he had. He would do that every single day. And I know a couple of people who are very successful writers, who are very, very successful and very prolific writers. And I think one of the two, one of those guys is one of the people who told me that story. And he literally does that. He literally is yeah. like, you just have to, you don't, you don't take any time off. You just, if it's your job, you just do it. Right. Yeah, I guess I think so. you're right in terms of like, People who write full time, like you can, you can produce a tremendous amount of work if you are dedicated. Right. So I was talking to a scriptwriter recently, um, for to commit for um for a drama thing mm. that weirdly I'm getting to as a producer, I get to make drama things. Mm. But basically, so this guy, I was like, oh yeah, so you know, we we need six episodes, and we need it in this time, we need it for this much money, and do you think it's doable? And he was like, well, it's only 180 pages. That's easy. That's the dream. Right. And I was like, and that guy, I, I had no reason to doubt him, but he reckoned he could bash out 180 pay, quality pages too. He could right. do 180 pages in maybe 45 days. Mm. Which is actually, you know, yeah. like, that's that, I don't even think that's quick by his rate. <laughs> He's definitely the kind of, he can write a novel a month kind of guy. Like, Right, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, <clears throat> but you, so you, you were talking about how, um, how before we, we were recording, you were talking about how um, you find, you know, writing fiction, and you mentioned it just a little bit about how exhausting it is, how tiring mm. it is, how you find that really diff- that sort of tiring and exhausting. But for example, painting miniatures is is not. It's not remotely in that same. They're very different sensations, right? So when you <laughs> When you you know you're talking about hobbies and stuff, when you sit down and after your work you want to, you paint your models, that's a very different experience, right? That's you, you mentioned that was like therapy or something. Yeah, so when I do something, uh, same cooking and painting miniatures and building miniatures, I find incredibly therapeutic, yeah. and it's something I can do with my hands where I'm not kind of engaging my brain in any mm. sort of meaningful way. Whereas with writing fiction, well, writing anything, but writing fiction is mm. not something I can do, kind of like sort of disaggregated from my conscious mind so i have to be like fully engaged and create fully engaged in kind of like not just what the words are going down the page but about like where the where the sentence is going into the paragraph where the paragraph is going into the page where the page is going to the whole story right like you have to keep so many things in track that you can't um, but I find I can't kind of like switch off from it. Although it's funny though, like sometimes I don't know if anyone else, maybe other people listening to the podcast do experience this. I certainly do sometimes. But when there are times when I'm writing where it's it's very bumpy, like it's like sometimes I will just be able to like absolutely fly, just right. type and type and type and type, and it's like it just mm. comes out of me. And I and 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 sometimes I'll go back and read that stuff and be like, God, this is awful. Right. <laughs> it came out really easily. But sometimes I go back and I, I like I I always like don't recognise the words. I'm like, oh my god, did I write this? This yeah. is really good. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's definitely yeah. a, a lot of the the tricks I kept trying to come up with for me were just like, mm. how do I get fresh eyes on my work that doesn't require me to put it in a drawer for three years? Mm. You know, just how how do I how do I get myself into a mindset where I can look at this differently um, than I did before and like trying to get getting people to read it or pitching it i don't know if it's tricks i don't know if necessarily 
Mm. It's quite a sort of spooky point. But basically, like, I don't know if like getting different eyes on it is necessarily a good idea. Because what there's, there's mm. one particular story that I've been working on, I guess, on and off for about eight to ten years. Mm. Um, and is this the space one? My th- yeah, yeah, my, that is the space one, yeah. And my, my kind of thinking of it has really evolved enormously yeah. over the time. And I'm fundamentally a different person writing it now yes. than I was when I did the first draft. Yep. And I think that's there's, there's, there's versions of writing where you bash it out really, really fast and you get to the end. And that is very representative of you and the yep. moment you're in there. But I think these things that take that gestate for years and years and years, and you spend a long time kind of mulling over. I don't mm. know if they're necessarily better, but they definitely contain a kind of a much more sort of total version of you. There's a really great um, yeah. sort of foreword on a Terry Pratchett book where he talks about this called Carpet People, and it was a book he wrote. It was the first book he ever published, and it was mm. published when he was seventeen. It's pretty impressive as anyone who's like yeah. you know getting a teenage fantasy novel published is pretty tough. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. like it was like I think it was thirty years before we had another book published. It was a long time between mm. first novel and second novel. Yeah, and uh, essentially, he he had it, people could kind of get hold of a copy of Carpet People and couldn't get it because it had gone out of print really quickly. And eventually, he just decided that what he was going to do was he was going to write an updated version of mm. the Carpet People okay. uh, and re-release it because essentially, wasn't particularly happy with the original book mm. and so, so so there's a really interesting passage in it where he's like going back to that book and rewriting it was like writing because he did a lot of books in collaboration with other people and he was like it was like writing a book in collaboration with someone else because it wasn't oh, me right it was someone yeah. who was, it was 17 year old me was so different yeah the 40 50 year old me yeah uh, it was it was like reading it was like rewriting somebody else's words. And he also, yeah, you know, obviously being Terry Patrick through is a joke that the best thing about, you know, it was simultaneously the best and worst collaboration <laughs> that he'd ever worked on because uh, you know, the other person's writing was terrible, but at least he didn't have to split the royalties with them. <laughs> <laughs> well I, but I, 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 I did an interview with a friend, uh, Johnny White, which probably will have gone up before this one. Uh, and I, I was explaining to him that you know this that sensation you're talking about how you're a different person sometimes you have a, an idea for a story but you are not the person you need to be to be able to write it right you're just not there yet and it takes time to become that person like, i've had that experience where i'm like i i i remember when i was a what 16 ish and I was, I was building a story and i must have spent years on it and then i think in my mid no early 20s something like that i just went i'm not good enough i can't do it i can't crack it yet uh and so i just put it away not because i'm never going to do it i at least i hope i do it one day but because mm. i knew i can't i i'm not good enough to pull this thing off just yet so <laughs> you think one of the great things about being a producer is yeah. you get to short circuit that stuff. So yes. my, I think I may have said this to you before, but my sort of, what I discovered my superpower is, <laughs> is my my lack of ego about admitting I'm bad at things. Right. So in television, yes. I was able to get like there were a lot of people that hoard their ideas yes. because they're like, I want to make this, I have to direct this. But I was yeah. always like, no, I'm shit at directing. <laughs> I'm really good at interviewing people. Yeah. I'm really good at finding stories. Yeah. I'm really good at telling stories. Well, I'm not particularly good at pointing a camera at things, so I'm very happy for somebody else to direct, and yeah. I'm very happy to just provide the story to someone who's good at that. Exactly. And so, 
not having that ego, I think, mm. has been enormously helpful in terms of a in terms of a career in collaborate an inherently collaborative medium like right. audio storytelling or like yeah. visual storytelling where the people who are the worst people in the world are the people who are like i'm the lone wolf i do everything <laughs> myself yeah. these people are dicks right yes. like you need people yeah you do. Need, and i'm at my best when i'm when i'm collaborating with other people because yeah. they kind of rein in my more lunatic excesses <laughs> but also because uh, i one of my biggest problems as a, as a creative is I cannot tell the difference between a good idea and a bad idea. They're <laughs> all the same to me. Yes, that's actually, yeah, that's a very fair assessment of you. Like, because you, you oh, no, maybe for your ideas you can't. But I don't know. I, I remember when we were trying to write a sitcom together, you, you were so good to collaborate with because we're trying to write a sitcom and it's very easy to lie to yourself and tell yourself a joke is funny. And you would just be like, no, Bass, we're not laughing. Move on. And I'm like, yeah. he's right. We're going to move on. Like, no one's laughing. And like, I, every time you did that, I was like, I'm so glad I've got Will because someone else would indulge me and like be going like, oh, yeah, I guess it could work if we did this, maybe. And if we did this, and like eventually yeah. you've tricked yourself into thinking you've done something funny when it isn't. Whereas, and it was great because when you would do that, because it's just a natural thing, I would then be able yeah. to go, we're not laughing, Will. And you go, you're right. And then we move on. So yeah. I don't know how true that is about maybe your own ideas you have problems with, but in yeah, my experience, like you were, you were yeah. pretty good at just like shooting down a bad idea. Well, I definitely am. And, and the, this comes back to the time thing to an extent in the yeah. sense that like, I'm very aware that my time is like finite. Okay? Right. And like, it does really annoy me that we didn't get that sitcom. Or we were, we tried to write together away because I feel like there's this whole other world where we could have been enormously successful sitcom writers because because I genuinely think that that was a really funny sitcom and I think we, I we were like touching on a zeitgeist and I think a lot of things that are in the same ballpark yeah kind of subsequently came out which suggests that yeah we that probably... was a bit that was a bit of a weird called shot some of the things that came out right um, yeah I mean I don't, like, I we literally cast all part of this we literally like dreamcast a specific actor in a specific role, and then they made that sitcom yeah, with yeah. that actor. I think the truth Just... about it was because one, we're all part of the zeitgeist, right? So you, yes. you're affected by everything in the same way it's true, yeah. other people are. But the other thing I think about it was I think we had, and this comes back to kind of my my time point. Like I think we were very we were very commercially aware of what the, what the market wanted. And this yes. comes to my time point, right, where I find it very difficult to work on things. And this comes back to my sort of goal. Yeah, I was going to bring you back to this because, like, you're, you know, you're saying that, you know, you don't have the time because of all the work you do. Then it's exhausting to do the writing. And what you what you're just about to segue into was this thing of just, like, you know how what your time's worth. Yeah, so it's very difficult when you're like, so I was a freelance dentist for a long time. And I, at any time, if I wanted, even now, if I want to write an article in, say, like a national newspaper, it's mm. not hard for me to pick up the phone and be like, would you like, I, I actually turn it down quite often. I get offered to write articles mm. and say, look, I'm just too busy, I can't do it. But if I want to write an article in the paper, I can get, I can spend an evening doing it and get mm. paid like three, four hundred pounds for it. But it's very difficult for me to be like, to write anything where I can't see mm. a kind of a commercial and maybe I'm too money focus, I don't know. No. But for me to see to do anything where there isn't a commercial end game to it is like I always feel like 
this goes back to what Luke was saying about like it's not a hobby, right? Mm. I find it really indulgent to write anything that is kind of, dare I say, I I sometimes think about some of the things I've written and I describe them as being masturbatory, not in a literal sense, but in a, I mean, maybe I'm an enormously successful erotica writer and just not admitting it, but (laughs) the the, the thing is, there are definitely things I write which are like, I feel like, I look at them and I go like, if there is a chance that this could get bought by a network, this could get bought by a publisher yeah. and would be successful. And equally, there are things that I, I really enjoy writing where I'm like, oh, actually, that's just never going to, that's never going to sell. And mm. I know in my heart of hearts that it is a bad idea. And I'm very happy to shoot things down because something that you said, um, you said on Twitter recently, this quite interesting thing about, um, uh, you, you you were talking about kind of people saying, oh, well, could you do like a writing prompt or something like that? And you were like, no, because they're just not helpful. And oh, creativity, yeah. creativity, you were like, look, the thing about it is, is that there's a myth that having ideas and inspiration is really hard and it's not. It's actually, having the idea is actually really easy. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's acting on that idea yeah. and delivering that idea that is really the important thing. And that's what separates yeah. professionals from amateurs. Um, what, what, yeah, what it was was a friend of mine, uh, a guy called Wobbles. I don't know what his real name is, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's Twitter. But I've known him for a few years now. He's a really nice guy. He's very supportive, uh, and he was suggesting, like, whenever I put up a thing, it's like, you know, what should I do? Uh, what would people be interested in? He's always one of the first people to respond, mm-hmm. and he he was saying that you know you should do these prompt, these like nano prompts of like what people, and then people would like sketch off those things. And yeah, I always say like the problem with that is it's not um, when when you're a creative person you you don't need ideas, just don't need yeah, them. You have too many. You have too many, and you you can't do anything with them, and it doesn't help people actually do. Like uh, it's funny because he's part of the the magic uh, the gathering community that I'm a part of, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of custom people like to make custom cards and they do custom design mm-hmm. prompts and things, and. They often do that. They do the like at the moment they were doing for October this thing where you have a word and you're supposed to make a magic card based off the word. So it'd be like curse, and you make a card that involves the word curse or something. It's thematic. And I said, you, you know, I I can't be bothered with that stuff because it doesn't. It's not real. Whereas there's another one called the Goblin Game where the guy gives prompts that are very very specific, and they feel like what's called um hole filling in inside wizards where there are times where they need one card to fit onto a sheet and there's all these little parameters that are required to fit that you have to fit the card in like it has to have a name that begins with cr because it has to fit the collector numbers and therefore it's got to be black and it's got to have this piece of art that kind of stuff right so you've got all these little things and like to me i'm like oh this is actually a skill that if i was at wizards i'd need to have Mm. right and i explained that when we used to do the brigadier thomas memorial competition you and i used to do that they used to give us a theme and the first thing that went out was the theme you'd come up with some yeah you came up with some flimsy excuse for how this is connected to the theme and then off you go and you do the thing so uh for me it was just like these these prompts they don't actually promote um they don't promote anything useful they don't give you any useful skills they just sort of have this sense of create uh, of um here's an idea for you to do a thing and it's like well i understand that's nice but it's not it's not real um 
Yeah, no, I can understand how things like that are fun, but yeah, as I say, it's one of those things whereby when your when your time is limited and also yeah. your time is like wholly convertible into money, ultimately. Yeah. Which is a really mercenary way of looking at things. No, but it's true. I think it's a fair way to look at it because as mm. I, as I said at the beginning, right? This idea of like, oh, you should—it doesn't matter if you're not in the mood. You just write every day. It's like, but it's not your job. It's not your livelihood. So mm. therefore, and also because you're involved in production, all right, and you're a producer, so you know production hell, right? You know how hard it is to get things made, right? I mean, you were just telling me a story um, about someone. I don't know. If we can. I don't know who uh, a big time director. Yeah, the grand designs person. No, no, no. Yeah, so so, someone else. Really? Someone else. Oh, Ooh, uh, God, I'm really. <laughs> I can always. Uh, how Drop about a name? Give me a clue. Uh, well, we we <laughs> the guy was telling you. Uh, the guy was telling you about how. Uh... Yes. No, I can tell you this. So basically, okay. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna slightly euphemistic. I'm not gonna name names. Okay. But, um, I'm gonna say that this guy is like one of the most successful movie producers in the history of the world. Right. Right. And um, he has made. He basically made. I'd say you can probably work it out from this, but basically. He made, I'd say, in the 1980s, he made probably five of the top ten gracing films in the world. Yeah. Uh, he is just like, and in the 1990s, uh, he yeah. made like prob- probably three of the top ten yeah. gracing films. And in the 2000s, he made uh, probably all of the highest gracing TV shows. Like, literally, yeah. like the, yeah. he owned like the entire... I was about to say the name of the franchise, and you could guess it. <laughs> Just have to take my glasses off and say, ah, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was talking to him, and I was talking to him about like getting things, getting things away, and things like that, and uh, and and getting things commissioned. And this is a guy who I thought literally he could get anything made because mm-hmm. he's because of who he is, because of who he is. not even because of who he is, because also like if he wanted to really make something, he could just make it. Yeah. Right, he has that much money. If he right. wanted to make any movie he wanted, he could literally just take the money out of the bank and mm. make it. Uh, so, and I was I'm talking to him about like, oh, you know, do you have any regrets from the the 1980s? And he was like, you know, the movies we got made, yeah, they were pretty good. But let me tell you, we pitched about five or six movies that would have been much better. Mm-hmm. And it was so refreshing to hear somebody who was literally one of the most successful people in at the highest level of filmmaking who could get anything you'd think this person could get anything made right but he still encountered barriers so the thing is it's not it's not like there ever is a time so there's a great bit in the in the verse i don't know whether it's in the preamble of every show or whether it's in um just in a couple of them uh, the shows you've done but there's this whole idea of like when have you succeeded like when have you like made it right right yes. and it was it was so fascinating to be in a situation with this guy who has made yeah i mean in a literal sense billions of dollars worth of movies and there was stuff that he couldn't get made right so so he didn't feel like he made it in those well, terms there well, was still mountains th- to climb i think which the, was really fascinating. i think the reason i um i i recognized that very early on was when i was what 26 i became friends with adam hughes and yeah. uh in fact you've got a poster of his layer behind you um yeah which uh, yeah yeah, right there. yeah you can't I, see but i'm pointing at it yeah yeah and um like he when i was growing up i wanted to draw comics and he was he was my hero right 
Um, and that, I just, I wanted to draw like Adam Hughes. Um, and I remember when I became friends with him and I'm talking to him about projects he wants to do. And he's like, and he's still like, you know, people will forget I exist if I don't put out a monthly co cover. And, uh, you know, I can't, I can't do this project because no one will want to get it made. And I remember like at 26, I'm like, you're Adam Hughes. Who would tell mm -hmm. you no? Right. But like, that's the reality of it. There's always someone above them who has the power to say yes or no. And those people sometimes say no. And of course, Adam wanted to do things like he wanted to do a Captain America comic, but everyone's like, you know, maybe, maybe uh, instead of Captain America, it should just be like all the girl Avengers in a car wash. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, that yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah. I, I want to do Captain America in a trench coat. I, he, that was, I think that was more of a joke story than it was a real story, by the way um because of the way he told it it was like this is kind of an exaggerated story but it was kind of cute this idea that like i bet you there's a i bet you there's a there's a grain of truth to it whereby, like definitely i, I definitely don't i don't think i don't think he was actually feels. i don't think he was turned down i think it was more he realized yeah. that um it was a harder sell than he wanted it to be but uh, the, the thing about it like you know how hard it is to get these things made so when you're sitting down yeah. and you're thinking about writing a, a story that you want to tell like the, the space story or whatever and i know because i've had these discussions with you mm. the, the thing that intrigued me so much about that story and i'm not going to get into detail but was how you had solved how you could make it for for no money how you can make a yeah. science fiction show for no money and you told me how you would do it and i was just like that is a fantastic bit of budgeting and production thinking of how you would do it and I, we did the same thing with our sitcom like how would we actually yeah. film this cheaply and it's like you went well if you film it at this time of the year it's it's going to be nothing right yeah and i was just like this is so for me though i just talk about a, a sort of my way the way my sort of like creative process works it kind of illuminates that a little bit so basically, I'll have an idea, mm. and then once I've got an idea, I'll be like, okay, brilliant, I like this idea, I'll write it as a page. Mm. And then once I've got it as a page, then I will think about how I could make it, Right. how I can make it real. Like, mm. what if this is going to be television, mm. how am I going to make it? If this is going to be a film, how could it be made? Mm. And then if it doesn't fit into either of those buckets where it's like possible to be made in either of those buckets, then it goes into a kind of a, well, maybe it's a novel right. kind of, maybe sure. it's a novel uh, kind of thing. But like, yeah, generally my, my process involves, my process, like I'm, <laughs> I off. but yeah, my process genuinely involves a stage where I go like, yeah. what's the best? So the question I'm asking myself fundamentally is not like, how do, how do I make this? It's what is the best medium for this? Yes. And the way I interrogate that is go, could I make this? Yeah. Could I make this? Like with the, the resources I have right now. And, you know, the ideas that often interest me, mm. I suppose, are, so a particular, particular interest in mine are like, I really love Wayne Scott horror. Mm. Like I really love, which is like sort of horror where everything seems normal, but you can always kind of tell there's something lurking under the surface. Yeah. It's like, Babadook and things like that. And that's yeah. a big component, actually, Intimate. of um, the like space right. story we're talking about is yeah. part of that as well. Um, so that's a big, like, duality is a big theme in a lot of the things I write. Sure. Uh, you know, things that seem one way but are actually another. And that's not just in a sort of a horror context and kind of relationship dramas I've written. That's a big theme. It's just clearly something I care about and mm. 
know, it sort of it worries me or moves me or whatever. Um, but yeah, a, a big part of, of everything I write is thinking, well, how would I make this? And and yeah. and, it, and a lot of the things I'm interested in are very makeable on a fairly low budget. Mm-hmm. Like that, and, and, and I'm not intentionally, but I always sort of, I feel like a lot of the time, like it's very, I, I meet a lot of young writers who are like, oh yeah, I've done a spec script for the Avengers. And I'm always like, well, that's great, but like you're never right. going to get to fucking make that, mate. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're never going to make it. This is, I mean, that's going back to that that thing that you mentioned about the creative prompts and the the, the custom yeah. magic community and stuff. Like when you sit down and you are someone who's 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 not, you know, when Luke talks about people who are hobbyists versus people who aren't hobbyists, yeah. the big difference is like I don't want to make a custom magic set just to make it i want it because i want people to play it i don't want to write a story just to have written a story i want people to read it i want it to actually do the thing it's supposed to do there's a functional aspect to what you're doing like the the creative act i'm engaging in has a functional reality and if i can't manifest that part of it then there's no point in doing it and so at some point you put you put on that those pants of like how am I gonna how am I gonna make this happen, and when you can't you don't do it and so that's why I don't think you know when you say like I you know I get home and I don't want to do it it's like well because you know how difficult it's going to be to try and make it but and that's I also if you can, think right? that there's an element and this goes to the whole kind of making it like real thing like yeah. I have to kind of convince myself it's makeable where I think yeah. there is an element of like and I think this is something a lot of people I I know struggle with in terms of writing fiction is there's an element of a fear of failure. Mm. whereby it's a lot easier to go well you know i know i don't have the time to write a novel or whatever than finishing a novel sending it to publishers and then going no we don't want to buy this it's shit right right like that reject that sense of rejection and i I think one of the reasons i go through that exercise going like how would i make this uh do i you know is this is is this doable as television mm. is this doable on a, on a british television budget is this doable as mm. audio is this doable as a novel whatever is because i think that is a really good way for me to kind of assuage my own my own fear of failure because i can tell myself no that this is definitely doable on a reasonable achievable budget mm. and if i want to do so what's something i'm always really tempted to do is like so I know a few people who've made low budget films. I'm gonna say low budget, I mean like really good stuff on like, you know, mm. kind of a an a, like an affordable budget. And I you know, not kind of not even like yeah, I'm gonna go into the specifics, but mm. like a, a budget I could I could theoretically afford and it would mean like you know, it would not mean sort of hardship or anything like that. I would be taking a mm-hmm. risk. And there's a part of me that's always like I should just do something like that because right. I I feel like the best thing you can do with some of this stuff is just is not actually go through the traditional route of yeah. like I want to go to a production company and then we'll kind of you know we'll raise it'll be part of a slate of films and they'll raise right. film finance against it and then we'll pick the best one and yeah 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 years down the line years pass and then you know they pick somebody else's thing and you don't get to make it right um, what I feel is like sometimes with some things you are better to just go and do it right uh, and. And that, I think, that can just be writing. But ultimately, the thing about writing is, unless you're writing in a form that people habitually read, and like novels, for example, yeah. 
and you are in a situation where you need to cooperate with other people you need other people to make it yes and so i do i think if you if you i i think part of me feels like if you if you want to do film or you want to do television the best thing to do is just go and make it yeah and like take yeah. just take the money especially now you can just stick it up on youtube it. and it's done right yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, Especially we, with like, some ideas where, you know, like, it, it, they are uncommercial. I think there can be a real value in just doing it. I mean, it because you're never going to sell some ideas. It's like, interesting. So why not just make music? It's interesting you're talking about circumventing the production route because you are a producer. And you were telling me the story about the Grand Designs uh, person, right? Isn't that what happened? Yeah. That, was so, that the story? So Daisy Goodwin is a really amazing creative and certainly one of the most, most impressive creatives I've ever encountered. And she does exactly the same job I do. She's a development person. She came up with some of the like the best formats in television. Mm. So she came up with like Escape the Country, Escape the Chateau, um, Grand Designs, and these are like these are like one. In, I mean, you know, you sort of look at Grand Designs and go, "Come on, is that really great creative creativity?" But if you look at the Bible for Grand Designs, it is like a fucking Swiss watch, right. where in every episode, I think there's something like forty-eight emotional beats. Mm. Over, over, I think seven acts in right. Grand Designs, and if you once you've seen the break, the breakdown right. of an episode of Grand Designs, you can't unsee it. Wow! And it is so on a railroad track, but it's beautifully designed and beautifully right. made. And the reason it works every week, over and over and over and over and over again, mm. is because she sat down and she like she thought that through mm. with probably more care and attention than I think a lot of scriptwriters put in fiction, yeah. right? Even though it's a documentary, but anyway. So she's an amazing creative and she has, as of 2016, in her like mid fifties, I think. Yeah, she, she's, I think she's, she's maybe 60 now. So she, she's got her first writing credit on a fiction thing at 55. Mm. And she's been writing fiction since she was 15. Mm. So she's been writing, she was writing fiction for 40 years when she went into public. Mm. Um, and she's an enormously successful creative, but by going through the traditional routes, mm. um, going, you know, sort of sending things to submissions and right. like uh, sending things to production companies and all that kind of thing, she yep. never got anywhere. Right. Never got anywhere. Nobody ever looked at her work at all. Mm. And the way in which she finally got something made was obviously she was like at the pinnacle of the TV industry. She was sat down having a big lunch with an agent. Mm. And the agent was like, well, you know, in a very kind of Alexander the Great way, it was like, well, what, what world do you want to conquer next, Daisy? And they weren't <laughs> there to talk about him representing Daisy. They were talking, they were there talking about, you know, like her, him, one of his kind of, it's one of his talent going on one of her programs and she was like you know what i've always really wanted to write i've got this amazing idea for a series about queen victoria mm. and i think you know she's a great protagonist for all these reasons and, and, and for the first time he was like actually that sounds like a really cool idea why don't i why don't i pitch it on your behalf and so yeah it got pitched it got pitched to um pbs and mm -hmm. it got pitched to TV and that is the series Victoria but that was the first thing that she had yeah. made um, and it took her 40 years of trying and the yeah. only way she got it, it was effectively through a kind of a non-traditional route whereby because a lot of the time I don't know if an agent pitching a script to attempt to a production especially a, 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 from what is a first time writer to a production company is going to get taken seriously well yeah I mean what about what if that came across your desk 
I mean, you, you are the guy you're talking about, right? Like, well, how does that affect? It's like, difficult because I'm definitely in a position where I, so we did have a fiction on and we did our first drama. Yeah. Interestingly, we commissioned our first drama. We, well, I say we commissioned our first drama aired on the BBC this, this Sunday, actually. Um, and so I do get pitches come across my desk. But I think for me, like a really big question I always ask is like, you know, I look at the scripts. I, I tend to evaluate kind of a lot of the writers we work with are, are quite early stages in their career. So I tend to evaluate people writing on like, the big concept at the heart of it, um, but also in terms of like very audio specific things about like how will this play in audio? Yeah. Why is this audio rather than the kind of visual? It goes back to what I'm saying about you yeah, know, yeah. can we make it in medium X? But why is this audio is a really big question, a really good question. And one of the best pitches that I've seen actually in the last few years is um, it's because one of the great things about audio is really interesting is a bit like animation in the sense it costs exactly the same amount of money to do two people talking in front of a sink as it does to have a dragon ravage Tokyo. <laughs> um, so yeah, like yeah. A, a, a totally valid answer to the question of why it's audio is because, well, we can't afford to make this as television because we don't have like a bajillion dollars. It would be too expensive. Yeah, That's yeah. one of the great one of the great things about working in audio is like, although it does limit you in a lot of ways in terms of like, say, for example, as an audio script, it's mm. very difficult to have an audio, it's difficult to have an audio script with more than about two or three characters. Because mm. you need to have wildly different voices to tell people apart. Yeah, and people kind of really lose track of things once you've got more than about four voices in a story. Mm. So that's really difficult. But but yeah, there, there is a really, there are some like really compelling ways. So I suppose with, with, with audio, if that crossed my desk, I think I just I would I like to think I would treat it on its merits and go yeah this is a great this is a great story and we'll tell it but mm. I mean I'm much more I suppose I mean now I'm going to get loads of unsolicited pitches from your from listeners <laughs> jokes on you I don't have any that. listeners well, that's a bit of unsolicited pitching <laughs> will I've got Fox in it novel the audio um, but essentially yeah so I, I I'm I'm very keen on big ideas big high concept ideas. And things with a great kind of reason to tell us audio. So I think what would happen if Queen Victoria crossed my desk is I would probably say, this feels very sumptuous and beautiful, and therefore it should probably be television rather than right. it should be audio. There's no good reason to tell it in audio. Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. It seems it seems like that. I mean, there is definitely this sense, but also you you know you were mentioning earlier about how when you do a project, it means you get to hire 10 people for a year, right? And if a project's mm -hmm. so small, you can't hire people, then it's not it's not worth it, right? You were talking, you know, I mean, this is what, because I actually asked if you wanted to help me mm -hmm. produce this, and you were like, no, it's just too, there's not enough, like for a company to, to get involved in, like there's not enough momentum or anything. So mm -hmm. it's like, it's, uh, it, it, there is this sense of like, it has to, on the one hand, if it's so expensive and so costly, you know, you know it's, no one's going to pay for it. But then if it's too small, then people just, it's its too small for you. You know, you're not, we're not going to get the income we need off your thing, but we're still going to spend the same number of hours on it. And so therefore mm -hmm. we lose out on that. So there is this sense, you know, of what you're saying, which is just like when you're starting out, you're too small to really be able to get anything produced. And yet, you know, so it's like it makes sense. Just go circumnavigate it, go around, just do it yourself, get it out there. Um, yeah, and like, I don't like. I don't. I don't feel like you're. The, 
thing with the podcast is like so in terms of like it being too small i don't think this is in any way a sort of a wasted effort for you by the way like i think it's a no. really good <laughs> no 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 when you you explained really it to, interesting you explained it to that me very you explained it to me very well like it, it just it, it was like this isn't you it's not a commercial thing like the you know, I, I make no bones about this. This this podcast has an incredibly small audience. Like it's very very small, mm. and so did the toolkit. Like they have, they don't, they don't have big mm. podcast. I explained this to Luke. It's one of the reasons why we never brought the toolkit back. I said to him, look, the reality is, um, for non writers, we're too technical. So people who want cafe criticism mm. and they want to just have fun with it, people who want the creative prompts, that kind of stuff, hobbyists, etc. Like I don't have anything against those people, but it's what. But we're too technical and we're too serious for that audience, typically, right? On the other hand, that level of technicality and so on puts people in the industry off because it feels there's that every time I've engaged with people, it's like there's a challenge in this. Like it's like somehow like well, if you know all this stuff, why haven't you done it? Or like, well, I don't think that way, and it's just like there's this weird sort of um aggro that goes on and it's just like they're not interested because they're too busy doing it and they're not interested in hearing someone analyzing their process that's not interesting to them they're doing it it's done if you're analyzing their work they finished it so they don't want to hear about it anymore and for the people who are hop so there's like the only people really interested are sort of amateurs and semi-professionals who are still trying hard uh, but you know, th so the audience is very, very, very small. There's a very small window in a person's career where yeah, the content I I'm doing is. Think, anyway. I, I, just, just to cut across you there, I actually don't think that um, that the audience for that sort of like you know kind of semi-professional, uh, it's kind of I want to do it and I want to take it seriously. Mm. Audience is actually is actually that small in absolute terms. I reckon it's probably. In the UK, it's probably thousands of people. Right. I think the issue with it is, is the sort of numbers you need to make a commercial podcast yeah. are very high. Exactly. So for example, like what I had recently. Sorry, but just to give people a sense of the sort of numbers. But yeah, okay, you can. But I, that is how you made it clear to me. Like when you you explained it mm. to me very clearly, like it, it's not a commercial enough prospect. And I, so the point I'm trying to make here is, it's like it's not just like um, you know. She spent forty years trying to do this, and no one was willing to give her a shot. But there's this sense of like it has to also be something that can keep the production company going. The production company yeah. has overheads, it has costs that need to be recouped. And if you're even if your thing is good and you're not going to produce that kind of money because the audience isn't there, you can't do it, right? But you're going to say about yeah, numbers. it's difficult because that whole that whole like, notion of commerciality and the way it feeds into your writing is really really distorting yeah. so for example um i had a real struggle i managed to get it away in the end because it's a brilliant idea if i do say so myself <laughs> but i'm working on this comedy series at the moment um and like the minimum number to make a commercially viable show is like a hundred thousand listeners a week yeah and that is that's crazy hard that is from crazy. a standing start like, Fucking hard. And so we were dealing with someone we were dealing with someone who we were confident could get like sixty thousand listeners a week. Right. So not like a nobody by any sense, like a comedian who can sell out tours. Right. Is our sort of main is our main kind of person. But we really had to work hard to convince the 
to convince the broadcaster that 60,000 of the right demographic would be good enough for advertisers. And so, like, the numbers, I, or, uh, the numbers for, like, a commercial ad-funded podcast are just mad. So 100,000 listeners a week. Yeah, a week. So it would take my podcast 19 years to get 100,000 listeners. Boom. We know what you're doing for the next 19 years. In 19 years, years I'd have had 100,000 plays at the current rate. That's it's not 100,000 plays. It's 100,000 a week. Yeah, no, I'm saying. Yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, it takes 19 years yeah. to get what you need a week, right? So unless, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, like, it's, 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 not, it's not in a ballpark. It's no, yeah. it's nowhere close. You've got to become Bean Dad. That's the way to do it. So you've just got to become <laughs> the main character on Twitter for a day. Oh and millions God. of people will read your, will listen to your podcast and be like, what? But that would be good for a week and then it will <laughs> fall off. But, but there is this constant sort of maintaining. But, but, but anyway, like, um, I think that's that's an interesting thing. Like, because you're saying, you know, for you, when you're writing, you know all this stuff inside and out. You know what you need in terms of numbers and in terms of audience size. Not you, like it's more acute for you. I, I think I, it's definitely something I've thought about, and I don't have that same way of thinking. But for you, and particularly now, and where you are in your career and what you do, it's very clear for you. Uh, you're going to sit down. You go. I, I'm going to write. And you go. What's the point? I can just. I can paint some miniatures, and I can make. I'll make another project tomorrow. I don't need to yeah. write this thing out, knowing full well that in order for this thing to be even made, I have to somehow guarantee this many people yeah. watching it. it. It really pisses me off though sometimes. So there's this brilliant idea. Yeah, if I do say so myself, a brilliant idea for fantasy. But the problem with it is, is a, a central part of this fantasy novel is there is a massive play. It destroys everything. And with my commercial hat on, I'm like, we are at least a decade away from people being able to read about contagion or pandemic. Right. Because I literally go onto literary agents' websites now, and there are like banner ads saying, "Do not pictures anything to do with a pandemic or a plague, yeah. please." Yeah. Right. And so it's so, and like that commercial awareness is such a curse sometimes. Because it's good because I'm not like fucking yeah. sit down and write a novel that no one's going to read. But at the same time, I'm like, I kind of wish I didn't know so I could just write that story because it's, a, if I do say to myself, a fucking great story. I really want to tell it. I, I, I get that. I know it won't sell. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to watch a pandemic fantasy. The only reason I want to watch a pandemic sort of fantasy thing is if someone did a sort of sci-fi dystopia story that exposed how ridiculously optimistic Mad Max is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? They've still got petrol. They've got <laughs> petrol and people admit that there was a nuclear winter. Like, now we we got like, there's, oh, no, it never happened. Like, you don't get anyone who denies the dystopia <laughs> exists. You never get that. Like, now... I'm sorry. We've got, we've got a, the, we've got a, we've got to get like Chernobyl's the best example of like um, the the horror of the dystopia, I guess. But anyway, um, so I guess I guess that's a, a, a good place to end it. You, you, I mean, you've made peace with the fact that you're not doing much fiction writing, right? No, I wouldn't say I've made peace with it. So really, I would Still. like, I would, I would say, like, I was listening to. Um, Writer's Jihad, uh, which is the producer's note, I would really like 
you could call this Why Am I Not Shakespeare Yet? And that is a way better title. That's a 100,000 listener repeat title right there. It would, it would get you off this watch list too. Oh, that's <laughs> you're actually right. Why am I not Shakespeare yet? Yeah, would be actually a, is a better title for this. You're right. Okay, that is free advice right there. But I, in, in my defence, I didn't know about that until I interviewed Dan. So <laughs> it's his, um, his anyway, Yeah, there's nothing wrong with stealing the title. The best thing I've ever written. I did not come up with the title for it. Somebody else came up with the title for it as a joke, and I was like, oh my god, that's such a great title, and I stole it, so fine. You're, it's uh, it's com- completely you're so, acceptable. You're so right, that is an excellent title for this. This this is That's the yeah. perfect title. I want to kind of go back now. <laughs> it's too late. I don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. Like, the reason I like Writer's Jihad is because it's so personal to you, it's so spiritual, I really like it. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm just you know, so I'm I'm always like really kind of inspired by your because I'm an atheist but I'm super inspired by your faith oh. and like with putting my little boy into a school at the moment and like oh. I am so down for my little boy to go to a school where there's communal worship oh, and like right. religion is a really big part of it but yeah so this is religious I just right want, I'm sorry your wife is religious isn't she yeah my wife is religious yeah, yeah, yeah. my wife is religious my oh. wife's a Catholic but it's so important to me that my little boy grows up with faith. Oh, that's really um, Yeah, and it's such a big part of, like, you know, I find your faith really, really inspiring, and I'm always like... That's very kind. But I wish I had that in my life, uh, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but you're right. The, the current title is very personal to me, but if someone... if I honestly never considered it until just now, and as soon as you said it, I'm like, that, I wish that was the title. That is the perfect <laughs> title for it. Like, it, you're right, it's... Not only is it more commercial, but... Dang! If it's like, yeah, there, there's definitely Cash is the essence of it. There's definitely a sense of there is definitely a sense in my thing of just like I'm a bit. When I came up with the title, I was a bit annoyed at the idea that I might not be able to use it. That kind of like I got a bit indignant mm. about that. Like I should, it shouldn't be. I mentioned this in the Ashley episode, which is the mm. second episode up. Um, I mentioned how like it was a genuine question of like, can I even call it this? And I kind of got annoyed because yeah. the I, when I came up with the idea, I didn't think of what to call it. It was like, that's the idea. That's the name, right? It's And I got annoyed. I'm like, wait, I have to hide where I got my inspiration of it because of this. And I'm like, I don't, yeah. uh, I, I shouldn't have to hide where I get that stuff from, right? Um, so I shouldn't have to hide like my, my, uh, my religion. So I was like, and that's what, that's what, where I got it from. So, uh, so, but now I'm like, uh, if I'd had that, <laughs> if I'd had that in my back pocket, I might've called it that. Uh, I didn't think of it. See, this is where you do some AB testing and you put the whole podcast out again under the Shakespeare title and you see how well it does. And then you see, you compare the two. And I make, I make, I make, I make a whole other account, uh, a whole other and then you create a bit, create a bit of art for why why Shakespeare yet yeah, with like you photoshopped into the classic Shakespeare bar. <laughs> it's easy. It's a, winning, the, it's a winning form. Do the whole thing. Do a little, <laughs> little test. See see which one does better. Yeah. Maybe. Um, but yeah. <laughs> but, um, in terms of have I made peace? Yeah. <laughs> no, I haven't. Because I really? want to write it. I want to do it. And it's... Um, so I was listening to... I've listened to uh, quite a few of the episodes of mm. Writers Jihad so far, and I've really kind of empathised with other people. And there's definitely 
struggles that I've heard people have, I think everybody's struggle I've heard so far, I've recognised. Yeah. Some I've overcome, <laughs> and some I haven't. Yeah. But um, but yeah, no, I haven't made peace with it. I still, I still really want like it's a real ambition of mine to mm. have like fiction I've created out in the world, and I mean, the, I'm getting sort of close to it in a weirdly like producerial sense at the moment, whereby I'm I kind of like I am responsible for like selecting which of our fiction pitches go forward, and I work a lot on our fiction pitches and so on. So yeah, forth. but they're not your pitches. But, no, they're not mine. They're yeah. not mine. Which is, but but again, we come back to the sort of like my level of. Um, it's really weird to base about how humble you are, but my my um, <laughs> yeah, my kind of my sort of lack of ego around mm. not having to have my name on things and things like that is absolutely you know it's fine in that regard. Like, mm. I'm very happy to pitch other people's work and to to kind of and to admit that other people are better at a lot of things than I am. Yeah. But I still want to write fiction. I do still want to kind of create fiction. I would love to be in a situation in say. 10 years time mm. where I had like I'd love to have like be able to walk into a branch of Waterstones and see right. my novel on the right. shelf there mm. reduced to clear but yeah no, no, like I'd love to have a normal I'd love to have a TV show I'd love to have a TV yeah. show like a TV and despite the fact that like I've got as I say so yes. many credits in TV that I can't count. I would love to have one like writer with like Fox. That would be a huge, yeah. a huge thing to have something out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's 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 not something I've made peace with, and 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 it kind of nags me. And quite often I'm sort of sat on the team, and there's there's a couple of stories. I'm sure you're the same. There's a couple of stories that I always come back to. And I'm like, yeah. I really want to tell that story. I really want to write it up. So what are you going to do about it? I think I'm probably gonna. Um, I'm probably going to do more fiction writing, Bass. I think you've won. No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the problem is, if you try to do more fiction writing, you're going to be in the situation where you go, you do your work, you come home, you're exhausted, you've got your kids, you've got... uh, And the um, the only way you're going to be able to really decompress is by painting miniatures. And you need to be able to decompress because if you can't decompress, uh, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. You're going to have to. You're going to have to. about my kids getting older. Right. Basically, when your kids are very little, they need you all the time. Yeah. And so, what my kind of, and, and also my wife's really busy, um, mm. really, really busy with her work at the moment. But I think as my sons get older, and I'm already at the point where, like, one of my sons was getting up at five for like, for, like six months. Mm. Now he's getting up regularly at like half past six, but I can't. I personally can't sleep past six anymore. That's right. a fucking nightmare in of its own way. Really, but one of my one of my friends, a really good friend of mine, what he does is, is similar to me. He's a he's a dad, and what he does is both his kids are up. So one's up at seven, and one's up at half seven. So when my kids get to the point of getting up at seven, and the little one is up at seven every morning, mm. and the big one is up at half past seven. I'm going to get up. This is what I'm telling myself. This is going to happen. I'm definitely not going to sleep in. And, uh, <laughs> I'm going to get up at six every morning and try and spend an hour every morning just trying to write. Yeah. I think the I think I know what you say about like, and, and there's a specific reason why that is happening at the beginning of the day, mm. not the end of the day. Mm. So I think at the end of the day, I am too tired. I do need to be. Yeah, but maybe at the beginning I think first. My theory is. When my kids are a little bit older, 
first thing in the morning, I'll be able to get up and I'll be able to try. And I think the other thing I think, so the longest, I have written incredibly long form things. I wrote a, um, I wrote a dating blog. Yeah, you um, did. Which, which, is, which is subsequently, I forgot all about that. Sold as, yeah, yeah. Uh, that sold as like a movie. That's I've sold the movie rights there. I've sold the rights there. I've sold all yes, the rights there. Yes. Yeah, I remember, and I, I remember. Uh, <laughs> I remember some of the production stuff that happened with that, but we won't go into that. So, uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, you, you, that's that's true. You did. Um, the thing about it, like you know, okay, I'm going to start trying to write in the morning. The reason I think that's yeah. brilliant is because. One of the things I've noticed, I learned this from myself and by, uh, through these interviews yeah. being sort of confirmed, is this idea that people don't realise how important tiny invisible aspects of life in, impact your ability to mm -hmm. write. Things like the size of a room, what time of day it is, etc, 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 just tiny little things like that. And writing in isolation, writing with music, without music. And mm -hmm. people have a presumption of how you're supposed to do it. And it doesn't work for them, and they can't. They, it's not like mm -hmm. they just can't. As you were saying, you can't get in the zone. You know, when you're painting your models, you get into your zone. You can just focus on it, and it's not this grueling effort to just do it. I mean, it might be difficult mm -hmm. to make choices of what you write, what you whatever, but like the effort of actually just sitting there is, you know, um, and changing little things like that can really affect that. So you might find you're very productive um, for the. 45 mm. minutes or whatever you have in the morning mm. so, so my sense is also the other thing about it is, is like one thing i've learned from painting miniatures mm. um is <laughs> this is a really great kind of productivity tip but <laughs> once you've done something it mm. stays done right so yes. if, you, if you so one of the ways i so i paint whole armies of miniatures and people are often like astonished mm. they're like oh my god how have you painted so many figures you've mm. i've painted literally thousands mm. and the truth is you can't wait for the perfect moment right you can't be like okay well because because i used to do this i used to be like oh i'm gonna have a whole, i'm gonna take a whole week off work right. i'm just gonna paint an army and it's gonna be brilliant but you'd always have things to do on that weekend yeah. you'd always be of like course. oh you know like life would get in the way yeah but if you go downstairs and you paint like one elf sword <laughs> come back tomorrow yes. that sword's still painted right yes the key thing is if you do a little bit, it doesn't have to be much, even yeah. if it's one sentence a day, yeah. it's like a it's like a it's like the, the it's like the dribble of water that eventually like erodes away the castle wall. Like, oh, yes. You can. If yeah. you write a page a day, you'll have a novel in a year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's the way that sort of erode like the, erosion no. technique is kind of i think the only way i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna actually finish stuff yeah that makes sense um i get that what i was saying about the blog as well was one of the things that massively helped me with the blog and i think this goes to a point you've definitely made in the podcast before i can't remember which episode it was hmm. but about validation and about how like not hearing from people and not and, yeah. and having your material locked away and no one can see it and no one can react to it and you don't get that kind of dopamine hit of like i've done a thing yes um which especially in the era of social media is like really difficult to kind of train your brain it's to kind true. of like wean yeah. yourself off that dopamine there's a part of me that wonders like if i did a thing where i had like a really limited blog mm. effectively blog 
where I would be pacing the fiction I was writing, like the, the you know, whatever it was, every day there was like a new bit. Sure. You would look at it or something. Sure. Just to get that kind of like instant feedback and that sense. Because one of the things that kept me going through writing the blog, so really, I was writing that blog oh, for like yeah. eight months and it ended up about 50, 60,000 words in the end. Yeah. One of the things that kept me going on that, because it was hard to do at times, but one of the things that kept me going on that was the constant like affirmation of like yeah. every time a post would go up it was like yeah yeah right, you right. felt like you'd achieved something and you could like high five all the time. Yeah. and i sort of wonder if like if, if i'm kind of cheating my brain slightly by like, if i can create these kind of like artificial kind of i finished a chapter guys oh, what do you think not, that's not a bad thought See if... it's not a bad thought it's not a bad thought i can kind of I, I, that makes sense to me um because it ties back into that sense of like you're not you're not writing it as a creative exercise it, there's a function to it like you want this to get made right but mm. if the time between writing it and getting it out there is huge and you don't know how it's going to get out there then you don't want to do it right so in that mm. sense i i don't think i think you know the dopamine hit thing is a i don't know how true that is uh, it kind of just makes us sound like monkeys you know bashing away at, at, at things but I, I don't know about the dopamine stuff but the the sense of like affirmation and that i i think mm -hmm. feeds into that sense of productivity of just like oh it, i've done it like i've actually mm -hmm. it's not so much the adulation and the uh oh a brief moment of chemical happiness mm -hmm. it's more that sense of yeah. i did a thing people saw it i know people saw it and there's an audience there and so the thing exists mm. as opposed to just um yeah so the one thing i've ever actually i say the one thing the one fictional thing i've ever actually finished mm. which is the pilot script for a series mm. i managed to do that and i was like i set myself a hard deadline as well i, I react very well i know a lot of people don't but i react very well to deadlines mm. I set myself a hard deadline and i was like i'm gonna get this done by this date and i just committed to do a little bit every morning and it was mornings nice. were the best time for me to do it well that's great it was the one time where i could clear my schedule that's but since right. having kids that has disappeared well, but, then, ah, but. well there you go then okay well then that'll change soon enough and you can make peace with yourself because you'll be doing it piece by piece fingers crossed the erosion fingers thing crossed. i really want to tell you the plague story now it's such a good story and, 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 <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> you could always tell me another time dude but i, I think that's that, that's a great place to end it so uh thank you okay. so much will um and the best way if people want to try and get a hold of you or follow all your production work and everything you can follow me on twitter i'm at willard foxman on twitter and mm. if you've got any pitches for things that uh, you know bear in mind uh that what i'm really looking for is things that have like a really solid reason to be in audio and play out over say 10 30 minute episodes mm. and like Feel free to email me the pitches willard.foxton at novel.audio. Ideally, like the initial pitch would be like, don't go away and write 300 pages <laughs> and then be like, how about this? The ideal pitch for me is about a paragraph, right? Which explains the idea at like a high level and is like, how about this? Hmm. If I like it, I'll say, brilliant, go away, write two pages, and then that will usually be enough for me to sell it if it's saleable. Fantastic. All right. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Will. No trouble. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Basim Story, 
and other ways to find and support this podcast can be found in this episode's description. Jazakallah.